Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. It's good to be home. I feel like it's been forever since I stood here. I was actually strangely uh, feeling nervous coming up to preach because I feel like I haven't done this in a little while. Um, I've been doing this for 26 years, but even a couple weeks off, and I just feel a little out of it. I was away in Albania with a small team. We were scouting Albania as a possible mission field for our church and for the Thrive Network. And I'm happy to report we had an amazing experience. We see God very powerfully at work. It was good for my soul because I haven't been in a setting in a long time where people are coming to Christ very quickly, where like you can have a meeting, share the gospel, and readily expect that people will turn their lives over to Jesus. They will respond to the living hope of the gospel. It was so refreshing for me to be in a setting like that, where it's not jaded and cynical, but it's new and it's life-giving, and it, it confers hope to people. And I think it's going to be really good for us down the road if the way is opened up for us to go and send many people there. Uh, It's really good to be home. We're going to pick up our series on the Lord's Prayer. We're almost done. And while I was away in Albania, uh, the Lord really gave me a a clear leading for the next sermon series. And I'm excited to introduce that to you in the weeks ahead as well. This morning, we're going to deal with one of our favorite topics, and that is our sin, our sinfulness, the need to repent and receive forgiveness. It's nobody's favorite topic. But let me start this way. Most of us probably know a narcissist. Now, don't, don't look around, okay? Don't be like, you know. We, we, most of us have had an experience where we've known someone, lived with someone, dealt with someone who we suspect is a clinical narcissist. Maybe you've had the misfortune of growing up under the home of a narcissist or working for a boss who's a narcissist. What did that feel like? One of the common traits of a narcissist is that they are never wrong. They have almost a complete inability to admit fault or to see that they have a part to play in any bad things that happen. For a narcissist, the biggest problem in their world are all the screwed up people and the world around them. It's never them. Every bad thing they do is because they couldn't help it. This is world around me made me do it. And even when you show them, they cannot see, I had a part in that. I have guilt. I have culpability. Now, if you've ever lived with or worked under a narcissist, it's painful, isn't it? It's frustrating. It's defeating. And it's really easy to see in another person. But the truth is, it's really hard to see in ourselves. I was watching YouTube, wasting a little time this week, and I came across this video Uh, on this mentoring network, and this man said, notice that your nose is right above your mouth. That means the distance from your breath to your nostrils is almost zero, and yet you're the last one to know when your breath smells bad. Why is that? We need other people to do do something like, ooh, have you ever had that where you talk to someone, they go, ooh, involuntary. They, They know it's rude, but you just, your breath is so bad, and that's the first time you go, oh, it is bad. It's so hard to see the stink in ourselves. 
admitting we've done wrong, asking for forgiveness, even of God, is really not an easy thing to do. It requires a certain level of humility, of releasing control and power, because the minute you admit you're wrong and you need forgiveness, you transfer all the power to someone else. And you say, I'm here in your debt until you release me. We've come to the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer, the fifth request we are making of God through this prayer. And it's interesting that confession doesn't come until this late in the prayer. And I wonder if it's because even though we are taught all the time, confession should come early, confession should come early, until we understand who God is and who we are, it's hard to make an honest confession. And so the prayer up to this point has revealed God to us, revealed his kingdom to us. And now we're praying, God, I see you. I'm starting to see myself. I'm ready to confess my sin. I'm not sure. This is not working, guys. My, could you just advance the slide? Thanks. And so Jesus says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I've read this verse like a couple hundred times, I feel like. And one of the first things that jumped out at me is Jesus doesn't say, if you've sinned that day, then confess your sin. He just presumes it. This is a prayer which Jesus intended for his followers to pray regularly. In the early church, in the generations right after Jesus was on the earth, the early Christians prayed this prayer at least once a day, often three to five times a day. It was the prayer that was the template for all of their prayers. It's what taught them how to pray at all to God. And one of the things they prayed every single day was, God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He presumes that at every moment we are ready to pray, we are also ready to confess our sin and our sinfulness. Now the other petitions we've raised... God, make your name holy, your kingdom come, let your will be done, and feed us, give us everything we need. Those are things we can readily pray on, on, on any moment of any day. But I'm not convinced that we're so ready to pray honestly, forgive me my sins, forgive us our sins. And that's an interesting distinction because I know what my sins are, but I've become more aware this week of what our sins are. As a church, as a people group, as a family it's something I've been thinking about more and more, and it's something we have to learn to pray, because at any moment we think there's nothing to confess, it introduces great distance between us and God. Jesus' choice of words in this prayer is interesting. In Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our debts. In Luke's version, the next slide, it says, forgive us our sins. And so it's clear that Jesus is using debt not in terms of financial debt, but in terms of it's a metaphor for sin. What he's saying is when we sin, it makes us debtors to someone else. So when we sin primarily, we become God's debtors. We're in debt to God. And if you want to help, uh, if, if I could help you understand what that means, consider that when someone does something wrong against you, when they sin against you, what's one of the first emotions you feel? One of the first thoughts you have is, you owe me something. I'm going to sit right here. I'm, we're not going to have a regular conversation. I'm not going to go watch a movie with you. We're going to be frozen in place until you give me what you owe. 
Because we feel that right away instinctively. When you do something wrong to me, you owe me something. And it's not always just an apology. What we really know that they owe us is better treatment than they gave us. You owed me better than that. Because of the relationship we had, I had reasonable expectation of better than this from you, and you gave me less. So I don't just want an apology. I want an acknowledgement from you that you owe me better than this. Have you ever felt that towards someone else? When we have someone hurt us, they become our debtor, and it's because they either violated us in some way, they hurt us, or they fell short of what we could reasonably expect from them. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 38, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So on one occasion when Jesus was asked, what is the one thing which God wants most from us? Without hesitation, he said, here it is. The thing that God wants most from us is that we would love him with everything that we have. And I want you to pause because that is such a familiar verse, but it has really been weighing me down this week. Because when we want to talk about the debt that we owe to God, and we say, well, I haven't done anything really heinous in the last couple days. I was trying to think, what's the worst thing I did yesterday? And I was cataloging it because I'm so pure and holy, you see, that I was straining to figure out what bad thing. Obviously, I did bad things. But our threshold is pretty high for when we decide I'm blameworthy. I need to make an apology to God. And so how do I reconcile this idea that I am always in God's debt? It's this greatest command that helps me really understand it. Because so often we say, I'm not that bad. I know so many people worse than me. But that's really a low bar. That's like saying, Mom, Dad, at least I'm not in jail. Congratulations, son. I'm so proud of you for at least not being in jail. But is that your standard of excellence? Is at least I'm not in jail. I know five kids worse than me. Do you accept that from your children? When you're trying to get better from them, when you're trying to urge them on for something more, and they say, hey, at least I'm not. The standard which God is setting for us is not, please don't be a jerk. It is love him with all that you have. The totality of every resource, every energy, every attitude at your disposal, that's the invitation of God. That's the command of God. Love me with everything that you have. And I, I really pondered this this last week. Is that the way that I really love God each day? I mean, I love God a lot. I love God professionally. I have to love God more often than you have to love God in terms of vocational activity. And yet, I was really weighed down by this. Do I love God with everything I have. I don't think I've ever once succeeded in doing that, but there was a time when that was what I wanted to do. Early in my faith journey, in my relationship with God, there was this holy zeal in me to give Him my very best. I'll confess, that's really, really waned over the years. It surprises me that that happens because I thought that everything that's worth doing that's good, I would get better at it more life-giving, more involved, more engaged as time went on. But I was surprised to find that it's more of a struggle sometimes the longer we walk with God. 
to have that heart for him. I want to love you with everything that I have. Sometimes we just outright violate that greatest command. We treat God with contempt or disrespect or neglect. Other times, we know what loving God with our all means, and we just won't give it to Him. And we do that with all our relationships, don't we? I know what you want from me. I'm just not going to give it to you. I gave you enough. Here's what I'm willing to give you. Take it or leave it, because that's where I'm stopping. We've all been hurt by someone having that attitude towards us, but so often we have that attitude towards God. This is what I'm willing to give you. Stop pushing. I've even been told that I am an annoyance on the pulpit because I keep swinging for the fences. Can't you just calm down and accept that we're reasonably good people? Stop trying to create revival every Sunday or something. Just let's, let's be even keeled about this. But when I was a new Christian, I didn't want any moderation at all. What I wanted was to be all in, sold out, completely given over to the God who saved me. And my first confession is this. I have lost that first love more times than I can count. And I yearn to have it back. Sin makes us debtors to God because we owe Him better than that. The next command in the next verse, Jesus says is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's another high standard, isn't it? Love other people in the same sacrificial, priority-oriented way that you love you. If I felt bad about the first one, man, the second one has far more tangible evidence in my life. I don't think I love other people consistently that way. Do you? So can we stand before God and say to him, you're telling me to confess, stop it. I have nothing to confess. I have loved you with all that I have, and I've loved everyone around me the way I love myself. When he says, ask God to forgive your debt, this is exactly what he's referring to. That we have owed God and those around us better than we've given. And it's important for us to acknowledge that. So much of the time, you don't want restitution, you don't want compensation. All you want is some acknowledgement from the ones who have hurt you, who have robbed you. At least admit that you know you owe me more than this. Can you at least admit that you've fallen short? We crave that from those who have hurt us. And God says there is a freedom in being able to say that to him. You know, I think lack of confession is a blockage in every relationship. I'm surprised at how much of my pastoral ministry has turned out to be counseling. I received one class in seminary on counseling and eight in foreign dead languages. That's a ridiculous proportion if you think about it because so much of my work is counseling. And much of my counseling work, and again, for the, the uh, professional counselors in the room, don't be offended. What I'm doing called counseling is nothing like what you're doing. But it's a kind of counseling. It's pastoral counseling. What I find is that one of the greatest blockages is an unwillingness to admit our wrong. Narcissists tear their families apart and they don't even realize they're doing it. But every time we fail to acknowledge our own sin, we do the same thing all around us. 
In order to truly worship God in a setting like this, you can't just walk in the door having finished your coffee and being in a good mood and saying, let's get down to the business of worship. I'm here, God. I'm your friend. I'm your ally. I'm your partner. I'm your servant. Those are all true, but that cannot be the starting point of worship for us. It's tempting to jump right into the positive stuff, the life-giving stuff, the I'm-on-your-side God stuff. But before we can actually have life-giving worship, worship that honors God, the first step has to be, I acknowledge that I walked into this room with a dark heart and stained hands. I didn't walk in here having lived a week of total victory where I was your ally, your partner, your friend, your follower every step of the way. I have fallen short and I want to take care of that right away. Have you ever had someone who offended you, who stabbed you in the back and then they try to gaslight you by like the next time they saw you, they act like nothing was wrong. They're like, hey, you want to go see a movie or something? You're like, no. No, you don't get to just act like nothing happened. We have to have a conversation about that last time we were together because that was a messed up thing you did. You had no right to say that to me. You had no right to do that to me. How can you just resume again and act like nothing got between us and we're just going to pick up where we left off? And yet that is so often the heart we carry into Sunday worship is all I remember being in your last Sunday. Let's just pick up where we left off. How much has happened in those seven days between you and the Lord? If we don't start with confession, then we approach God as though it is our right to be in the presence of God. But it isn't our right. It is a privilege that he makes possible through the forgiveness of our sin. Because our sin is a barrier between us and God. I was thinking back because every time August approaches, I have such memories of when I got first saved. Because I was saved in early August 1984. That was almost 37 years ago to this day. Every August, I reflect on this. And I praise God that I also got married in August, in early August, because then I can lump those two landmarks in my life together. I was thinking back to the day I got saved. I was between my junior and senior year of high school. I see there in the front row, my high school best friend is here. He and I did lots of non-Christian things together. At that age. And I went to this conference, this retreat for youth, looking to pick up girls, and Jesus whacked me over the head with his presence. And one thing I remember about that day that I got saved was that for the first time in my entire earthly life, I saw God for who he really was. And then I actually, for the first time in the same moment, I saw me as I really am. You know, it's possible. And I learned this, that you can go 16 years of your life carrying around a false picture of who you are. And that false picture of us is always more flattering than the real one. Have you ever put your most flattering photo as your profile photo and actually walked around thinking you look like that all the time? And then someone meets you and they're like, oh, oh, is this you? This is you? It's embarrassing because we start walking around thinking what I project to the public is the real me. That day... All the pretense was stripped away, and I saw, and I wept for all over an hour straight. I couldn't stop crying because I was overcome with shame and regret at the person I found myself to actually be. It wasn't something forced. I couldn't stop these racking sobs because I saw that day, for the first time ever, this is me. With no protection, 
This is who I am. And then the tears turn to tears of joy as I realize God is willing to actually accept me even now. On the one day where I saw myself to be the least worthy of love, I received from him the greatest depth of love I had ever experienced. I want to tell you right now, we may struggle with this idea that we have something to confess to God. That we have sinfulness in our hearts. When people hear today, we have dark hearts and dirty hands, they reject that message so readily. Stop it. Don't be so negative. Take it easy. If we could see God with our own flesh eyes right now, we would not be able to make eye contact. It would crush us, His holiness. His purity, who he really is, would overwhelm us. You couldn't sit here with God and just go, Hey God, what's up? I imagine that's how it would be. Hi Jesus, how are you? Isn't it been a good week? You wouldn't even be able to speak. I wish I could say since that day in August of 1984, my conscience became even more sensitive. But in truth, the opposite seems to have happened. And maybe that's true of you as well. It doesn't help that we live in times where self-esteem and feeling okay has been elevated to almost idolatrous levels. The most important thing, it seems today, is to feel good about yourself. I'm not saying that's bad. I hope that majority of our days on earth, we feel generally good and good about ourselves. But we've elevated self-esteem to such a high place, it seems like the worst thing you could do to anybody It's to make them feel bad today. Now listen, I'm really grateful that we are as a society becoming far more sensitive to issues of mental and emotional health. Because, let's be honest, in generations past, there was a lot of damage done without any acknowledgement whatsoever. I would ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to do that. But most of us have some scars because people who hurt us had even no idea, no clue they were hurting us. I'm glad we're changing that. But here's the danger of living in our culture, in our times. Is that we're losing the capacity to have this thing called the conviction of sin. When someone makes us feel bad, I don't know if we can distinguish that. Maybe not that person making me feel bad, but at some points, it might be the Holy Spirit making me feel bad. Now, sometimes it's just that person. I'm not saying there's no jerks in the world. There are some really prickly, self-righteous people who will make you feel bad for no reason at all. Let's forget about them. They're not even worthy of our time. But there are times when someone makes me feel really bad, and I'm tempted to get angry at them, to take revenge on them. But actually, the truth is, it's not them. It's God agitating my spirit. But in today's climate, it is becoming harder and harder to distinguish when it's God making me feel bad and when it's people making me feel bad. The idea of the conviction of sin is fading away in our culture, and I really believe we have to reclaim it. What do we usually do these days with that conviction of sin, that heaviness? Because let's be honest, we don't need other people to tell us when we've done wrong. Isn't it irritating when someone points out the obvious? We almost always know when we've done something wrong. What do I do with that conviction? There seem to be three really common options these days. One is to become self-destructive, to beat yourself up over, to hate yourself, punish yourself, because you know that you've done wrong and you just can't stand it. 
Psychologists call this the Dobby effect. Do you know what, the, do you know what they call the Dobby effect? How many of you are Harry Potter fans? I'm not, but I watched a couple of the movies, and there was this character named Dobby. He's this gross little elf-looking thing, but he has so much self-loathing and shame, and one of the things he does, he just bangs his head against any surface that's hard. He's just constantly banging his head, and everyone's trying to get him to stop because he's punishing himself all the time in self-loathing. That's one of the common responses people have today. Rather than actually dealing with it, they just punish themselves over and over. Another common pathway is to stop destroying yourself and start destroying other people. To become bitter and angry and filled with rage. To start exploding on other people. We have this interesting superhero called the Incredible Hulk. And if you think about it, the Incredible Hulk isn't really a superhero. I don't know what he is, but his whole deal is Hulk smash! Sometimes by luck, he smashes the bad guys. But half the time, he's smashing the friendlies. And that's the way so many of us have chosen to deal with the conviction of sin. I hate what I feel inside, and I blame the world. It's never me, and I'm going to destroy and scorch the earth. Other times, people just take the path of numbness. They just die inside. They feel nothing. They turn off their hearts. They stop experiencing joy. They stop having hope. They just give up. And the great tragedy, if you look at this next slide, is that none of those responses is necessary. God has promised us that He will never respond to genuine repentance with scorn or anger or rejection. Every single time that we take that conviction of sin and bring it before Him in real confession, every single time He will be faithful and He will forgive us. I wish I could say that about all the people I've known and hurt, but it's not true. With God, every single time. You know, as I approach my mid-50s, one of the yearnings in my heart is to feel at times the way it felt back in 1984 when I first fell in love with Jesus. I want so badly to feel some measure of that life surging up in me again. One of the things God's taught me this week through preparing for this message is if I want to feel the way I did at first, then one of the keys is I have to approach God in the same way I did at first. I find myself approaching God now as one who has done so many good things for Him, sacrificed so much for others, blah, 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 and I don't come to Him the way I did that day. As a sinner with a dark heart and dirty hands who cannot look at God's face because I know who I am. And I approached God in that spirit that day and what He met me with is I, He, he lifted my crooked back. He raised my downcast face and He said, you can actually have a relationship with me now. I want to feel what I did on the Trinity campus in August of 1984. And I'm finding more and more to do that, I have to be that same person again. I have to stop showing God my resume and stop acting like I'm one of his staff and remember again who I really am in his presence. I want to close with this. 
This is the one part of the Lord's Prayer that is so complex that Jesus expands on it after he teaches the prayer. In verses 14 to 15, the verses immediately following the Lord's Prayer, he says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's a potentially terrifying verse in Scripture. If you don't understand it correctly, it's going to do a lot of damage to your soul. What Jesus is not saying is that if you don't forgive other people, then he will hold forgiveness hostage in your life. He's not saying that the reason he forgives you is because you purchased that forgiveness by forgiving other people. That's not what it's saying. Even though grammatically that seems like what it's saying, that is not the lesson here at all. And in fact, later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 18, Jesus tells a story to actually unpack what this means. The point is not that if we don't forgive other people, God will spitefully not forgive us. He's saying, how can I forgive you when the fact that you won't forgive other people shows me you don't understand my kingdom? How sincere could your repentance be when you can't forgive another person? When we forgive our fellow human being, what we're demonstrating is that I understand how mercy and forgiveness works in the kingdom of God. I know how it works in the world. You grovel, you beg, and if you get lucky, someone will give you conditional forgiveness while they still hold it over your head for the rest of your life. That's how forgiveness and redemption works in the world. The minute you do something wrong to me, I get power, I get control, and I can use that in your life as much as I want. The way it works in the kingdom is that a freedom comes through freely forgiving. And when we cannot do that for other people, what we're demonstrating is that when we ask God to forgive us, we have no idea what we're asking Him to do. In that story in Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable about a servant who owed an unrepayable debt to a king. It was in the billions in today's money. There's no way in a, li- a hundred lifetimes he's never going to pay it back. And the king sees his remorse, or so he thinks, and he releases him of that burden. Then as he leaves the throne room, he runs into a fellow servant who owes him like a hundred bucks. And he mercilessly beats that fellow servant. And he sends him to debtor's prison. And the king hears about this and he says, I rescind my forgiveness of you. Because the thing you showed as remorse was not real remorse. It shows me that you have no idea who you really are when you stand before me. You just wanted to preserve yourself. You wanted to escape punishment, but you had no real sense of what kind of precarious situation you were in. The way you treated your fellow servant reveals to the king exactly what happened between you and him. And so he pulls back the forgiveness and he throws that unforgiving servant into prison himself. That's the whole point of the story. It's not that God will not forgive you unless you forgive others, but that you can't even genuinely ask for God's forgiveness if you're not willing to forgive others because that shows that you understand how forgiveness works at all. You understand what it costs Him. You know, it says sin is debt. Before we jump to the metaphorical, let's consider that just for a minute in the financial sense. I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but some of you have been in the situation. Have you ever lent someone a large sum of money and they swore to you they're going to pay you back? 
Listen, I know it's a big ask. It's a lot of money, but I'm going to pay you back. I'm good for it. You know that, right? And in your heart of hearts, you're like, okay, I'm going to write you a check. I'm going to kiss his money goodbye. You say, you, you swear you're going to pay me back, and then they don't. And you're left with this decision. You're like, do I just press this? Do I let it eat a hole in my heart? Do I, make it, do I let it make me bitter? Or do I just let it go? And when you forgive a financial debt, what does that feel like? Because you have every legal and legitimate right to claim that money, to force the issue, and when you release it, you're giving up money that is rightfully yours. And that person has done nothing to earn it. You're just wiping the slate clean. You're freeing them from jail. What does it feel like to let go of that power over someone? To just release them. To not have to give them 18 lectures. But just go, look, don't worry about it. It's done. And when we understand that dynamic, then we properly understand what we're asking God every time we ask Him, please forgive me. I knew better. You've given me more than enough that I shouldn't act like this. And yet I did it anyway, because I love myself. And when I ask you, God, to forgive me, I'm not asking you to forgive me as a victim of circumstance, as someone who had no choice. I'm asking you to forgive me as someone who borrowed money from you and decided never to pay you back. Unless we really receive that kind of forgiveness and understand it, we won't be able to forgive other people. Let me finish with what Will Willimon, one of the, the commentators writing on the Lord's Prayer, wrote about this. In commanding us to forgive others, Jesus is not saying that the injustice we have suffered is inconsequential. The sin we commit causes pain. The sins committed against us cause pain. Rather, and listen to this, this is so important, Jesus is refusing to let sin have the last word in our story. Those are such powerful words to me. When we forgive someone, what we're doing is not letting that sin have the last word in our story. And how many stories have ended horribly because forgiveness would not go out? How many relationships died an unnecessary death because I just can't get past it? I refuse to forgive you. I can't. I won't. And a salvageable relationship. I've met parents and children, adult children, who never reconciled with their parents in 50 years. And they can't even remember why they stopped talking. All they remember is that with every passing year, they refused more and more to ever speak that person's name again. So unnecessary, so tragic a loss. And yet it happens because forgiveness will not, cannot go forth. And what he's saying here is this is not Jesus taking away our power but he's giving it back to us. He's saying, you get a voice in deciding how that story ends. Will you let sin write the last chapter? Or will you let the gospel write the last chapter? Willeman continues, in commanding us to forgive, Jesus is not producing a race of doormats 
A new set of victims who, having been slapped on the right cheek, offer the left as well so that they may be twice victimized. Jesus has no interest in producing victims. The world produces enough. Rather, in commanding us to forgive, Jesus is inviting us to take charge, to turn the world around, to throw a monkey wrench in the eternal wheel of retribution and vengeance. We don't have silently to suffer the hurt, to lick our wounds, lying in wait for the day when we shall at last be able to return the blow that was dealt to us. We can take charge, turn things around, be victors rather than victims. We can forgive. The world frames forgiveness as weakness and insanity, an unnecessary relinquishing of power. But Jesus says that in his kingdom, forgiveness is the ultimate power. It's the one way you could take a terrible situation and reclaim some manner of agency in all of it. You know, confession and forgiveness is nobody's favorite topic. I think we'd rather just come to church and focus on praise and joy and hope and love and all those good things. And we should. That's a big part of worshiping God and being together as a church. But I think it's important that we regularly as a church family pause in our services to confess our sins before God. To not just assume we've taken care of that business individually walking in, but to say that together we're going to go to that place before God. The Lord's Prayer provides us a very clear way to pray that. But I also want us to pause to th this morning and pray this beautiful prayer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Are any of you familiar with the Book of Common Prayer? The Anglican Church um, developed this, this book of written prayers to guide the church so that we not only pray from our hearts, but we pray with theological accuracy, that we pray things that are true and biblical. And as we read this prayer together, I know sometimes when I've been in churches and we've read prayers that are on the screen, I just read the words robotically. I'm going to ask you, don't just read these words. See the words. Hear the words. Speak the words. With all effort, mean these words. I think they will help unlock something in us that might be stuck. So let's pray this prayer together as a congregation. I'm just going to read it slowly out loud. I'm going to ask you in your own voice to join me in this prayer. This is not one of those prayers that you have to work up. This is true of us right now. We can pray this, each of us. And we can be honest as we pray it. So let's pray it together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone we have not loved you with our whole heart we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son Jesus Christ 
have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Know that as you pray that prayer together as a church, the heart of God responds to you in mercy and forgiveness. That thing you're carrying around all the time with you, the thing you did, the thing someone did to you, God's invitation this morning through that prayer is to lay it down. And He will break you free from the bondage of that. So I'd like to give you a minute as I stop talking and invite you to listen in the stillness of this moment to what God is saying to you. And then in just a moment, our praise team will come back up and we'll sing closing song and finish our service. In this moment, just sit quietly with God and let Him speak to your heart individually. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.